Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have all returning friends, and it's a golden episode. Pamela Villacundu is back. She is the Director of Development at Bronx Connect. Pam focuses on strategy, development, and cross-functional initiatives to reduce youth incarceration and advance community-based human models of juvenile and criminal justice. It's a really great time to have her here. It's a great episode. It's very informative. Please share it with a friend. Also returning, Nitika Chopra, who is the founder of Chronicon, a media and events company dedicated to elevating the lives of those living with chronic illness. She started this company after several years of of dealing with her own chronic pain. We've had her on a show before talking about it. It's just good to have her here because Nitika was diagnosed with psoriasis at the age of 10 and psoriatic arthritis at the age of 19. And she lived with that for over 17 years of her life. And instead of being defined by her conditions, she's taken this moment to really share it with others and to create this wonderful site, Chronicon. Go to her website for more information, nitikachopra.com. Nina Karufi is back. She is one of my young comedians. Yes, she is. And she's a bright star. She also is the producer for various different platforms, including SiriusXM, MSNBC's Joy Ann Reed, and even for Fox News. She launched her very first children book. It's called I'm a Princess Too, and it's available now on Amazon. We're happy to announce that we are now a part of the Be Frank Network. Yes, you like that incredible new sound? Well, to be frank, that's the Be Frank Network. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. We need that. Please, we need those five stars. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and our Twitter is friendslikeustin. You can leave us a tip or a donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friends like us and with friends like us it will help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way but most important tell someone you know to check us out and wash those dirty little hands wear a mask welcome to friends like us hi everyone this is a really this is a real woman of color episode (laughs) hi hi I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so we have Nina Karufi, Pamela Villacundu, and Nitika Chopra. Yeah. Like, and me, Marina Franklin. Like, it's a real, it's happening. I'll start with you, Nitika. How are you doing? Oh, been, um, I know you guys don't know each other. So um, I just want to tell you guys, Nitika, I've known since, since I was a baby, basically, in comedy, right? Mm-hmm. And she's one of my closest friends. She's actually yeah. like a little sister to me. She she actually acts just like my sister, so that's why too. Um, and I mess with her a lot. You do. <laughs> I mess with her a tremendous amount. Yeah. Like I just told her I had breast cancer at the top of the show. Sorry, Pamela. I know I didn't tell you either, but I had it. But I'm fine. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're okay. Yeah. Wow. It was a shock. Yeah, it was a shock. It was. A, it, I I forgot to tell Nitika I had it because Nitika is like. An impact like she'll like cry and he's like she's feels everything 
which is a beautiful thing. She's a beautiful person. Well, thanks for dropping that on me. Um, How you doing? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. I am, you know, going through the pandemic like everybody else. I feel like every day, like nothing is happening and everything is happening in every moment. (laughs) So just managing that and like making sure my mental health is okay and the people that I love are okay and that we're somehow still moving things forward in life, which is like part of this whole journey. So yeah, I'm okay. I did notice that you were blogging and you blogged recently, but you hadn't for a long time because you're an influencer in like a very good way because you talk about pain and dealing with pain. So why did you take a break? Well, I launched, yeah. So I've been doing like my own blogging and stuff on my own website and channel, but I launched a company last year in 2019 called ChronicCon. And that's all for elevating the lives of people living with a chronic illness. I have two chronic illnesses. So I don't know. I just kind of got tired of like the whole cycle of just everything having to be about me and my story. And if I don't like push it out in a certain way or look a certain way or act a certain way, then it's like not relevant. And I'm just like, there are hundreds of millions of people in this country living and sometimes dying with a chronic illness. Like the way I look in a swimsuit or, you know, taking a selfie is just really not significant and it shouldn't be. So I just took a break from that. And it's not like I didn't share anything, but I really have just been focusing on sharing for the for the company, for Chronicon, and not for my own stuff, because it's just not as meaningful if it's not about something greater than myself. Good. Well, you look good. Oh, thanks. So do you. Yeah. Thank- I know. i love nitika so much i love you too and nina karufi is back hi nina hi marina how are you hi ladies hi so nina what's going on with you and we what you just said about being at the uh chappelle ranch oh man it was so fun so i I don't know how I got an invite, but I did. It was bizarre. And so the second I landed in Ohio, I got a text message and they were like, go to this address. And I was like, okay, I get there. It's like this little, this big silver dome. I knock on the door, two doctors come out. It's a Corona station. And they're like, here, we're going to, we're going to give you the Corona test. It's 15 minute results. So I get a text from the person who invited me and he was like, all right, if you're negative, you're more than welcome to come inside the, the Chappelle summer camp and hang out for the weekend. If you're positive, go to the airport and go home. I was like, okay. So I go, I get my first Corona test. They shoved it up my nose. I almost poked my brain. Um, it's as, it's as uncomfortable as everyone says it is. Oh, it is uncomfortable. Yeah. It's like a two second thing. I'm being dramatic, but it's just like, it's just like a bizarre feeling having something shoved up your nose. So after like 20 minutes, the lady comes out, she goes, congratulations, you're Corona free. I get a little band that says that's yellow. That means I'm Corona free for the next two days. Cause if you're there for a long period of time, you have to get tested every two days. So then I went and I got to sit backstage at the show and um, Michelle Wolf performed and Talib Kweli rapped and we hung out and we had a barbecue the next day and we went kayaking and it was the greatest weekend of my life. That was so unexpected. Every time I was just like realizing where I was, I'm like, how am I here? Like, I felt so undeserved of that opportunity. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it was so much fun. Dave is so nice. I'm sure you've met him before. Yeah, he's very, yeah. Granted mm-hmm. that you're very established in the comedy world as well no I was on his show and he's been always just very supportive yeah. and nice and co- when I worked on my special he called me and he helped me I do worry though about there's something about I love Dave and I love what he's doing but there is something about the fact that there are a lot of people who can't get tested um, and that are standing in line for tests and are waiting um, weeks and weeks and weeks upon waiting for results. Something about that kind of bugs me. I don't know how he got it. I don't know how, like... Privilege. I'm, it's called privilege. I mean, Black people who make money have it too. And I just think, okay, I'm going to say this. I love him. I love him a lot. And I'd be on that first plane out, I swear to God, if he asked me to be there. But I'm just saying, there's a little part of me that's saying right now, with everyone in the world suffering, really, really. And we got to lead by example if we're in the position of power to show that we're in it with them. That's it. Yeah. I, I said I wasn't going to say it, and I still said I mean, it. I guess. I know this is... I can't like, help it. I know this is like very small-minded <laughs> to say, but when it comes to, like, when it comes to, like, Black people or minorities, I never think that. Like, I never oh, think... Oh, well, you have money. You have privilege. If you could get a corona test... Every two days. That's that's privilege. Yeah, it's every couple of days if you're there, like, long-term, like, the, the open yeah. acts and stuff. That's nice. It is nice. It Like I said, it was the first time I, I got the corona test because, like, not going to what I haven't had any symptoms at all since it began. So I never felt the need to try to get one because I was never sick. Luckily, no one in my family has gotten sick, so I thought we were just pretty, like, in the clear about it. It was it was nice to know that it was a negative result, even though I've been reading stories that the tests aren't super accurate. Well, yeah, because I, I okay, I know I I act like a doctor, and I sh- I should have my fan. I get hot flashes, so if I start really shining, sorry, it's part of age. Um, and then we're gonna go to Pamela, but I do know that the test can be negative within two days. So I think that's most of what it is, is that people are going out after they get the first test that's negative, And then people go out and party. If like, you're a part of his camp, like you're just mingling with others who have had tested, like who have gotten tested as well. That's good. It's really, it's a really safe environment for them. I'm glad you had fun too. You have fun. It was so much fun. Look at me. I was like Debbie Downing on your part. <laughs> well, hold on. I mean, it's not my summer camp. I wish I had that kind of, a status where I could have sold out shows in a cornfield. Nina, I'm going to blame you. (laughs) But I'm glad you had fun. I was so happy to see you out. That's important because you're young and that's important. What about you, Nitika? Are you single now? Yeah, I'm single. I'm single. I used to have a hard time being single. Um, I was married when I was in my early 20s and then dated a series of people who were really not good for me for a long time. But yeah, I'm single now and I, I really feel great about it. Honestly, I feel really, um, yeah, I feel really healthy, I guess is like the best way that I would describe it. But I definitely, I've thought about like, do I just want to be alone and like not have a partner? And that's not quite how I feel. I think I feel like building a life with someone and having a partner and like being able to just feel like the world is that much bigger because we have both of us. So yeah, I think I just feel like having a partner and having someone that 
I can sort of have adventures with and do all of that. Cause I know how to do that by myself. Like it's not a question of, Oh, you should just try to do it by yourself and that'll be great. I know how to do all that stuff by myself. I think it would just be fun to have a partner. And I do think relationships romantic or otherwise are like the greatest teachers that we have in life. And so I think the idea of like learning with someone that I love would be so, so great. Although probably really hard too. I literally agree with everything you just said. I feel exactly the same way. It's like you were literally reading my exact mind. I also feel the same as Marina, but like I'm an Arab. So Arabs get married very young, even in 2020. So it's not that I care to have someone. I'm just so sick of like my older cousins or older family members saying like, oh, Nina, you still haven't found someone. Like, I feel like they feel bad for me. So that's why I kind of like, like you said, out of spite, like no bitches, like I found someone you see, you don't have to feel bad for me anymore, you know, but it's like, I live alone. And I kind of love it, especially since I've been working from home. It's very peaceful. No one, I wake up whenever I want. No one bothers me. I have all the internet to myself. It's great. Um, And then it's like, at the same time, some of my friends, because they're all older than me and married, they kind of give me the, you want us to set you up with someone? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. Um, so it's kind of like that battle between do I want someone or do I want to look like to prove to people that I have someone? It's like a bizarre feeling. Right. No, I think a lot of people battle with that, though. I think that's why a lot of people end up getting married. I mean, and I don't get the pressure about getting married because I already got divorced. So now my family is like, it's fine. We're not going to bring that up again. So I kind of did myself a favor in that way. But if I had been, I'm 39 now, if I had been like 39 and not married, my parents would be so all over me. It would just not be, it would be so hard. Look, I love being alone right now. I have I feel like, honestly, uh, it's if it weren't for society pressures to be with someone, I honestly do think this is the way I want it. I, I've been, like, so happy. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Every now and then I feel like the only reason I feel like I need to be with someone is maybe, maybe to spite an old boyfriend <laughs> that I didn't like or like to really hurt him or to let people know I have someone that's taking care of me. That's it. That's the only reason. So Pamela, what's up? How are you doing, Pamela? I'm good. I'm good. Um, Yeah. Overall things are good. Oh, that's wonderful. And like, cause I, I often ask married couples, like, did you realize at this point, this was the guy, like you, you always say that joke is like, you know, if there was someone I wanted to be with, the world was coming to an end. I'm so glad it's you. Did you have that realization? Or? It wasn't immediate. I will say um, we definitely had our mutually difficult you know, moments um, at the beginning of this whole thing. Uh, definitely an adjustment period. I, I worked from home pretty regularly before this, but he went in most days. So I think initially it was a really tough kind of dance, but... I think we're we're really we're good now. Um, if the world were coming to an end, I guess yeah, I would. I think he's a pretty good guy to be with. So, but yes, I totally think now that we've had some, uh, we've had our adjustment period and are settled into this new world that um, he's definitely the one. Because you have a two bedroom apartment and you work from home, but now he's also working from home too, right? Yeah, good memory, Marina. Wow. 
Yeah, no, it was just so important because it's like it's it's always something that's interesting to me is the way we listen to other people is so important because there's details that really are important. They distinguish the differences of what we're going through and they can create empathy, you know, and I think that's what's happening in America right now is that people aren't listening in the right way. So they don't understand and then they don't have like empathy for other people. Like, like, for example, when we say defund the police, like people don't really understand what that means. And I figure, Pamela, you could really speak to that because do you, can you tell the ladies um, what you do for a living? Sure. Uh, so I work in the juvenile and criminal justice reform space. Um, I've been in the space for about four years now, started off organizing to close Rikers Island jail. Uh, for those of you listening that are not from New York, Rikers Island is a really problematic jail that people have been kind of demanding close for many years. And finally, Mayor de Blasio in New York said, fine, you know, I think we can close it after tons of pressure and everybody thinking it was impossible for many years. And then I now I work at an organization called Bronx Connect, which is a youth organization. And we work with young people in the Bronx and Harlem that have our main program works with young people that have committed violent felonies. And instead of sending them to prison or jail, our programming provides options for them to stay at home and work through the issues that may have led them to commit the crime in the first place, whether, and you know, we take a very broad approach where some of those issues are structural, right? And some of them have to do with the fact that they didn't have a lot of opportunity and that they were traumatized for many, you know, various reasons that systems failed them, that their their neighborhoods are over-policed. There's a, there's a whole host of reasons why people end up incarcerated. And so our program looks at those reasons and creates individualized approaches for each young person. And then we also have a reentry program for adults. We've kind of expanded since our founding in 1999 to provide a whole different kind of continuum of services from prevention. We work with some schools in the Bronx as well, all the way to very intense, intensive interventions with youth who have committed very serious crimes. And then we also launched an advocacy and organizing team last year, which is really exciting because now we get to work on reforming and hopefully also disrupting eventually some of these systems so that we're really thinking about public safety, right? Because bringing that back to defund the police, I totally get how people would say defund the police. You know, what do you mean? There's a place, I think, in people's mind for police because we're not having those important conversations about what public safety really means um, and why, for example, in the suburbs, there's barely any police presence, right? And it's because people in the suburbs have access to all of these other services. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that defund the police can mean a lot of different things to different people. But the original intention of it back when, you know, prison and police abolitionists started using the term was to abolish the police. And so I don't want to, you know, Kind of pretend like that's not a reality and ignore that work because I think it's really important. But I think we need to start talking about, okay, so how do we get to a place where we're reframing the question, where we're thinking about accountability and safety, right? Because I think there's so many ways to create safety in communities where police doesn't get a majority of city budgets. Um, and, and I think at least in New York City, the police has too much power and too much money and that needs to be seriously looked at. So when they say that they... Because I think I just saw the commissioner say today that they got rid of the homeless 
sector or group dealing because the homeless situation in New York is pretty bad right now. I mean, as far as like when I went down to even the comedy cellar, it you always saw like the regulars, like kind of sad, but there are regulars that you know. But now it's like it's really aggressive. So the commissioner's whole answer is, well, you know, when we did the budget and I and I'm assuming he's saying, well, you guys wanted to defund us. You wanted to reallocate the money. Like, what do you say to that? What do you say to someone who's like, well, now we got all these complaints coming in because we are defunding the police? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be, I think we have to get really specific. And each city is different. Um, I would argue that a lot of cities have similar problems to varying degrees, but at the same time, it's different, especially when you think about like, you know, business owners in Seattle, small business owners that had to deal with because there was some looting um, and all these other issues, or even people in really poor communities that feel that there's uh, an important role for police to play. So I think we need to like, okay, so defund the police. And then we need to start talking about like, how can we start reallocating resources and how can we sequence it so that we're prioritizing resources to where they're most needed? And how are those things connected to crime, right? Because there's certain determinants that lead people to commit crimes. And sometimes it's petty crimes, right? But there's still crimes. And so I think, obviously, if you're in a situation of homelessness or poverty, you have, you're experiencing extreme scarcity. And New York City, so we need to like completely re-examine how even the housing is set up in New York City. Like we were working with a tenant who um, was has this thing called a FEPS voucher. And FEPS vouchers are apparently really difficult to get housing with. Even though landlords are supposed to provide housing to people with you know all sorts of vouchers, we were trying to help this person find housing for like six months. And so we, we eventually figured out how to place her somewhere with someone that we knew. Um, and we had to ask like, you know, how to place her. But the problem is that we realized is like to, to if she had gone to a homeless shelter, it would have costed so much more than just giving her permanent secure housing somewhere. Really? Yeah. And so it's all about like, how efficient are we really being? Is police really efficient, right? Because they have huge budgets, they have overtime, they figure, you know, they they provide they used to provide hopefully in New York that will actually be able to get them out of schools. They just they've become kind of the band-aid cure for things that they are not meant or trained to deal with. You know, they're not social workers. They don't know how to de-escalate. In fact, I would argue the culture actually makes a lot of those things worse. Um, And it makes it, you know, things unsafe for especially children of color or, you know, young men of color that in many cases um, shouldn't be criminalized, right? And homeless, I, I feel like also homeless people, that's not really, that to me, that shouldn't be a police a law enforcement approach. I think it needs to be a rehabilitation approach and a a housing approach that's actually smart, that's thinking about how can we house people because there's more vacant lots than homeless people, not just, I think, in New York City, but in cities all across the world. So de Blasio, who I'm I'm like really not a fan of right now, okay? Um, Like on a level that is extreme, but he's putting them in hotels? Right now in Times Square, I think, or oh, there's one right down the street from me on 79th Street in Amsterdam. Oh, really? Yeah, there's so like, what, what's going on? I'm part of that next door app, 
you know, that's like, yes, like, I have oh, it. I have it. <laughs> okay. I know I'm on it and I'm, I've written a lot of letters. And, oh, yes. Yeah. I only, I don't have it on my phone. I only have it like through my email so I can at least filter it a little bit, but yeah, people are really upset. I don't even know what to say about how I feel about it, but I do feel like overall the crime has gone up so much and it sucks because like to what Pamela is saying it's so easy to now say, oh, it's because all of you said that you wanted to defund the police when this is obviously a systemic issue that is so much bigger than the police. And so I I feel like I'm still learning so much about all of these things. Um, but yeah, I think that's so frustrating. And it's it leaves us in this place, or at least I feel in this place of like, do we just opt out of the conversation because it feels so big and it feels like, oh my God, I don't, I don't know where, what to say that I could possibly move the needle forward in any positive way. Or do we fight for certain things and how do we understand like what it is that we're fighting for and what's actually going to make the biggest difference? I feel like a lot of people, especially I talk to most people who are like in the wellness industry or just a very different type of conversation who aren't all used to being activists and advocates, except for maybe for their own health. So yeah, that just comes up for me a lot. I think I'm like learning and understanding so much more, but what is the solution in a way where I can actually help and make change or, or help other people make that change? I don't really know. But yeah, there's a hotel here, the Lucerne on 79th and Amsterdam. <laughs> And how is it going? Like, do you see? Honestly, I'm immune compromised. So like I try to not be out and about too much. Even so you don't see it. Even just like walking around. I'm on 82nd and Columbus. So I'm like just a few blocks from it. But yeah, I don't usually go in that direction. I usually go towards Central Park. Just if I go out, I go for a walk. So I haven't personally been affected by it. But every time I log on to the Nextdoor app, I see like a man was stabbed while eating dinner outside, like in the Upper West Side, a few blocks from me, or like a police car was set on fire uh, a block away from me a couple weeks ago. And now I live actually across the street from a police station. So there are all these like barricades and stuff on my street. I don't know. It's, it feels dark and heavy, But I also feel like a lot of the people that are suffering and that are angry have been totally marginalized and been suffering and angry for a really long time. It's just kind of exploding now. At some point, we have to wonder, like, people are doing this intentionally. People have, you know, there's another agenda at play where um, the, the most powerful unions, which are always like police and corrections officers in most cities, are scared because, you know, rightfully so they're facing huge potential cuts. And so they need to show that they are needed. And so we have to be really careful because I mean, you know, the, even up here, like there's a ton of fireworks every single night. I mean, still, it's, it's like now it's like twice a week. I hear it, but it used to be like every single day for a, m- a month and a half straight, like all the way into 3 a.m. And clearly to me, there's some dark force at play that was funding or organizing and then of course the cops are like oh we don't know what's going on we can't do anything about it you know i thought you didn't need us um and the same thing goes for housing right like what did you think was going to happen His, you know because this is a historical thing too like you put a whole bunch of people that that were struggling right in public housing projects for example what, like what, what come on like this is just common sense 
it's not going to, you know, everyone's not going to suddenly get a job. And I mean, obviously some people in public housing have jobs, but most people are struggling. And all of a sudden, like everyone's not just suddenly going to, it's not going to get better. You have to be, you have to design things in a, in a way that is conducive to community safety and community development, where you're mixing up populations so that people actually can get exposed to different, you know, ways of life and to different sources of social capital, right? Because social capital is so important. And there's such little social capital in public housing projects or in this new hotel that they've, that, you know, de Blasio has set up. Like, you know, all these people are probably all going crazy, just like I would be if I was homeless. And so you're literally setting them up to fail and intentionally you're doing it so that other people can go and, you know, say, oh, look at all these crimes they're committing without asking why. Right. Oh, you're, you're, you know, I just watched the Netflix story on the mafia. Uh, you know, the first time I saw it, I was like, I cannot, I'm not, I don't know if I'm mentally well enough to watch this right now, but I watched it last night. I couldn't believe, I mean, I've always heard about what the mafia did to New York City in the 70s, the corruption, but what you gotta watch it because it helps to. What's it called? Fear City. What is it called? It's called Fear, Fear City. Fear City, yeah. Because it'll give you, it's like, if you look at the history, you can now, if you look at the past, you can see what's going on now. And the police and the mafia were so together on a lot of stuff that it's amazing that we're where we even were like just last year. I mean, like, they just let people run this city that were murderers, basically criminals. And as I watched Netflix, I thought this is what they did to the black community. This is what they did to Harlem. I mean, I always kind of generally understood it. And I've read about, um, they had a whole story about the the black mob guy on Showtime. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Bumpy. Yeah. Forrest Whitaker plays him on the Showtime uh show but it's like how are we like we're climbing out from that basically new york city the black community like i think of all of this is very overwhelming can we do some of this this week <laughs> can we fix some of it this week like what like pamela if there was something that we could do right away like to relieve some of us who want to help or want to get involved or pay attention how can we how can we start? Uh, that's a great question. I think I think for it to be like a sustainable thing, it should be something you're kind of interested in. So like pick an issue, right? Because I think like we were talking about earlier, it can feel so overwhelming. Like where do you even start? Because we need so many, so like we need smart thinking and we need funding to, to, to go to so many different areas and we can't rely on the government, right? We have to look at the role that organizations on the ground are playing and figure out how to support them. So like, for example, Marina, we're, we're now exploring a potential at Bronx Connect, um, a housing model to figure out how to develop a community, right, where we have maybe someone that's transitioning out of homelessness or coming back from incarceration. How can we get them in, in a housing situation with other people in the community that have stable jobs that can serve as kind of like these community anchors? Um, and th- this is a brilliant term that uh, my ED kind of brought up. How can we like get them all to come out of this together, right? To uplift each other. Kind of like, you know, there used to be a much bigger sense of community in a lot of in a lot of the 
Black and Hispanic communities that have been torn down by the war on drugs and, you know, by some of the forces that you're, we were just talking about, Marina, before that, right? We didn't, if, if a kid got in trouble, we would say, let me call your aunt, let me call your mom. We're going to figure this out as a community. We're not going to call the cops. And so I think redeveloping that sense of community is really important. But if you want to get involved in something, you know, immediately figure out what you're passionate about, whether it's education, youth programming, housing. I had a friend who is a very successful consultant who works at BCG, who said she had a conversation with like a homeless guy standing outside once. And now she's like super involved in a group that's working on um, housing advocacy. And she's thinking about changing her entire career and looking at social impact which I think is really cool. So I think, you know, whatever, wherever you're kind of pulled towards, and if that happens to be juvenile or criminal justice, like, feel free to reach out to me. You can, you know, donate, you can volunteer. There's so many ways for you to support that specifically, but really just looking at like, what, what is going to be something that for you is going to allow you to do something to make a difference that's bigger than you. Thank you. That is just, that relieves me because that's so important because it's like, sometimes I just feel so pulled. Like Nina, don't you, like you want to do this? Like, I feel like as a stand-up, I do part of the work, some of it, but I'm not really an activist, activist stand-up, but I think the podcast is one way too. For sure. And then and working, I work with Imagine Society, which is with kids. We help kids to get involved. I, I am curious about the kids right now on the street. And I'm sure you've seen the change because I see a lot of the kids out. They don't have school. They ha- they can't go to summer camp. What are you with Bronx Connect, you know, specifically, w- what are you dealing with? Yes, I think we've seen a lot of um, shootings and violence go up in not in just New York, but in a ton of other cities, because I think kids are really frustrated. And it's not just, you know, obviously school is a huge structured part of their lives that's been kind of taken away. But their families are struggling. A lot of our, we did a, we conducted a survey and a significant number of the kids, uh, families lost jobs, they lost income, they even lost loved ones because the Bronx was really hard hit. And so they're really stressed. I think their families are really struggling to make ends meet. I think a lot of them are going to potentially be facing, you know, evictions. And I worry a lot about that. We haven't seen it yet, but I think as we see potential programs run out, and third thing, you know, there's uncertainty about protections. I think homelessness is going to be a much bigger issue for some of the kids that we work with. I think one in 10, if I'm not mistaken, New York City children is homeless. So that just gives you an idea, right? And homelessness can be broadly defined. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know the exact, you know, what the parameters of what, what it, that statistic um, entails, but just thinking through how do we how do we support kids that you know maybe don't have phones or don't have access to to computers because they're, they're struggling with a whole bunch of things but luckily well one of the other things that I think is really important now is thinking about incentives and stipends because um, I think kids need more support and families need more support than ever so we've upped our incentives and our stipends for young people so because zoom is you know for a child like my sister is in high school and, you know, she can't do school all day and she's very privileged. I can't even imagine what these kids go through with their, you know, their moms in the background. And sometimes it's embarrassing because, you know, your background might look weird or, you know. Oh yeah, look at my background. Look (laughs) at that. Mine is the, I, I, you know, I've just, 
I tr- I cleaned it up too. That's me I cleaning love it your up. background. You know who? Um, I was just thinking. <laughs> you know who else sits in her kitchen? I think it was Wendy Williams. Have you seen her? Wendy Williams does uh, has done like gone remote with some of her programming, and I don't know if it was like her official program or or some other like engagement she was doing. But um, I really loved how like authentic it was. I love the I love the kitchen, Marina. I wouldn't change it. Well, I. It just, you know, thank God I had it painted recently. (laughs) I mean, like before all of this, all of that paint and that tile right there, that's all very new, by the way. And he won't come back because he's a, he's like a Trump supporter. So I can't have him back. And he's black. He's black. (laughs) Yeah. And I was going to date him until he said that. I was like, okay. The story keeps getting better and better. (laughs) I was, I call him paint, Gary, the paint guy. And he's Trinidadian and he was, he told me like all lives matter. And I was like, all right, I'm glad you're done. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I'm glad I found this out after the paint work mm-hmm. was done. You know, I still have a spot that I need fixed though. <laughs> so I don't know, but I thank you for, you know, Pamela, just thank you. Any questions you guys want to ask her, please feel free, Nina, or like when you hear all of this, I know you guys are seeing the kids out on the street, right? Nina, you were yeah. shaking your head. So what are you, what are your thoughts on so, this? Um, my parents live in Cosette Park, which is a town that's like, there's no middle class. You're either like, you live in, a, in the like downtown where it's like you're poor or you live like in this little area where Dr. Oz and Cardi B live. Like it's literally like that kind of area. My parents live like 10 blocks away from Dr. Oz and like right in between there is like so many like, like buildings that are like filled with like very like people who don't have a lot of income and then it's like you go two blocks this way and the houses are beautiful so like they live right by an elementary school and since corona started like every morning if i'm in the area i see kids lining up for like the free breakfast and stuff and there's a lot of kids in my parents town that still go to school like in the morning for the breakfast and then they go home and then they go back for the lunch in the afternoon so it's like unless you really needed it nobody's gonna go no kid is going to voluntarily go to school when school's closed just to eat if you really didn't need it. So that's when my parents were telling me that they always see kids lined up. I felt so bad. So it's like, you know, kids like that, that no one's really thinking of. Kids that don't have any, like, internet at home or don't have anything to do except go to school. Like, it's their escape for pleasure. It's their escape from, like, abusive homes. It's their escape from everything. And then it's like they're just going to be stuck home for God knows how long. And then it's like... Yeah, there is a pandemic and obviously health comes first, but it also comes with a lot of sacrifice. So it's like finding the balance between the both is like really hard. I mean, I don't know what the solution would be, but there's so many factors that should be taken into consideration. Yeah, Pamela, I was wondering, what are your thoughts about this? It's not one of the articles I have in, but about the schools reopening. Like, I'm still very like, don't leave the kids. I know I. it's such, it breaks my heart. I talk to my nieces every Thursday. It's called TT Thursdays, <laughs> where I talk to them, and they're turning teenagers now. They're going to be 14, and it is challenging talking to them for me on the internet. Um, I could see the teenness of them, and I'm like, oh, God. Like, there's a lot of rolling of the eyes. <laughs> a lot of and, talk making. Yeah, but there are a lot of, like, TT doesn't get it. And they laugh at things I say, not because it's funny, but because I don't know. And so I'm wondering, like, they're social, but I worry about them because I could see them bored at times. So I do want them to be social, but I don't. The school thing makes me extremely nervous. 
I know in San Francisco, I don't think they're going back to school. In Chicago, I think they are. In New York, I know they are now. Governor Cuomo is given the go-ahead. I mean, I think I know they need this because if they're not doing this, then yeah, we got this stuff out on the street happening. So what do we do? I think that's, Pamela. That's the million dollar question. I really I I'm torn. My I mean, I kind of think my instinct is, you know, I, I also just get so damn angry because this all could have been like we all could have been going back to school much more safely at this point if we had closed down even like a couple weeks or a month earlier. So it's just, you know, all these kids that are now suffering and all of these like sorry Republican governors, you know, I grew up in Florida being all concerned about kids falling behind, like poor kids falling behind when they've never cared about those children. You know, they've never passed policies to help the gaps that were already there. And now suddenly they're really concerned about them falling behind. Obviously there are concerns, right, around, you know, even, you know, crime and violence and kids not having idle time. And so that's why I say I don't really know what the best answer is, especially also with a lot of parents needing to go back to work. Um, You know, a lot of agencies in New York and organizations do need to go back to work. And a lot of those families are low income or, you know, low middle income. And so we have to if if it's not school, we have to figure out something. And I was listening. Actually, I think the mayor uh, was talking about they're trying to get to a place where all the classrooms that are going to be used are need to be up to a certain standard of ventilation. So they're right now upgrading all the vent, all the ventilation systems. But in my mind, there's just no way that that happens by the time that kids are going back to school. There's just no way. I can't. I whenever he talks, I mean, I watch him, and I'm like, dude, you talk as if you did this right from the beginning. You are also responsible for us not close. Like, did you not learn from what you did the first time? Because it's like, right. What we did the first time, right, was not pay attention to what was happening elsewhere, right? Isn't that what happened? And so what is happening elsewhere is schools reopening. They're closing right back up. That's what's happening in places where they have actually the strictest, have done the best work at this. They're closing right back up. I'm paraphrasing what the headline was, but it was something about New Zealand kicking the whole world's ass in terms of like controlling COVID. So it's like, we should just do what they're doing. Did they open the school? I have no idea. I didn't read that. See, that's, that's what I, I always pay attention to like this little, so like if they did what they were supposed to do and the schools reopen and they still get a case, that should be a sign. Yeah. Because I don't know, I've been watching New Yorkers this weekend. I've been watching them. We ain't doing what we're supposed to do. I mean, one of the articles here about America could control the pandemic by October, let's get to it, is from the editorial board of New York Times. It says six to eight weeks, that's how long some of the nation's leading public health experts say it would take to finally get the United States coronavirus epidemic under control. If the country were to take the right steps, many thousands of people could be spared from the ravages of COVID-19. The economy could finally begin to repair itself and Americans could start to enjoy something more like a normal life. Six to eight weeks. For proof, look at Germany or Thailand or France or nearly any other country 
The first step to help control the pandemic is clear and consistent messaging. President Trump and his advisors have contradicted scientific evidence and themselves numerous times have sown confusion surrounding mask wearing and other crucial steps to halt the spread of the disease. The spread of data has also been very inefficient. If scientists had better access to such figures, they could use it to forecast COVID-19 conditions the same way they forecast the weather warning when a given outbreak is spreading and advising people to adjust their plans accordingly. Smarter shutdowns also need to be put in place and procedures and rules need to be clear and adjusted when necessary. The nation overall needs better testing, tracing, isolation, and quarantine protocols. So we should just go to Chappelle's house. <laughs> so what's, what's what I noticed traveling, because that was the first time I traveled. I haven't even taken the bus since like February. So that was like my first time going anywhere besides like my sister's car or something. So when I, I flooded uh, Newark and everybody had a mask on, everybody had gloves on. Before I got on the plane, they gave you like a little uh, package with like a, a um, sanitizing wipe. You wiped down your, where you're sitting. It was, everybody was spaced out on the plane. Great. I get, I had a stop for 45 minutes in Charlotte, New, North Carolina. I was the only person in the airport wearing a mask. Wow. So it's so crazy how when you go from state to state, it's completely different. What but was I, it? Um, I went two weeks ago. Everybody wow. was staring at me like, yo, know, the like that like I was crazy for wearing a mask. Like I didn't, I didn't get coffee. I didn't go to the bathroom. I didn't. I was just like, I literally stood by my gate and just like jumped on the plane and like clean because I had a, a thing of Clorox wipes with me. So like I just cleaned the shit out of my seat and the window because I was like, people are really in other states like they just don't. I don't know if they don't care or they're just unaware or they believe Trump or I don't know what the deal was, but everybody was eating. Everyone was at Chick-fil-A and kids were running around. That's insane. I was just like in the, in the airport from Newark to Charlotte was three like was night and day difference. I mean, who cares if you do whatever you do in the plane? If people are inside. It was a crazy sight that I saw. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not flying because I'm I don't flying. I don't really go anywhere like. I work from home. I don't like go to, I don't, I, I don't leave my apartment for four days at a time. So I've never been like, since it all started, I haven't been anywhere where nobody was wearing a mask. So I just felt like this is so bizarre. You, you know that go, it's so scary. Yeah. And you know, it's actually true in Jersey too, where the numbers are spiking, where I went further out when I opened for Jim Gaffigan and I think it's Monmouth, New Jersey. Yeah. I noticed there weren't a lot of masks and in going to Pennsylvania, I noticed there weren't, as the further we go out from the city, there weren't a lot of, it's just like, you can tell it's also whoever is aligning themselves with Trump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Trump and these governors. I mean, it all, I feel like it's all, it all comes from the top. I think these deaths are in his hands. I, I mean, he he's caused them in my mind, but I think also the governors have followed him and a lot of governors, not obviously not all, not New York, but in Florida, I've just seen complete idiot, like idiocy on the part of the governor. Like there. They're saying that you can't go and vote in November because it's going to be too crowded and we should like delay the elections. But it's like, yes, yeah, send all the kids back and let them cough and sneeze. And I mean, elementary schools before Corona were always like, super germ filled kids are kids you can't like what are you gonna do my like a kid goes to a daycare he like he has a cold the whole daycare gets the cold can you imagine like with coronavirus how it would be like you can't control kids in that kind of setting like they're just toddlers i could barely control them when i'm talking to them as they're on yeah. Yeah. 
But it's like, let's delay the elections because the polling places are going to be overpopulated. Like, you're a piece of shit. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, kind of, like, contrast, right? Like, polling place, at least at my local spot, I know there's a lot of long lines in places where it's really, pro- like, voting is problematic. But I'm, I'm, I'm luckily in and out. Like, I would have no issues going and voting, right? Yeah. At school, you spend seven hours with the same kids at sometimes. And, you know, teachers see the same kids every day. So it's so much more dangerous. And we're, I mean, if you think about it, like, even with all the spread and the horrible trajectory we've had in, the, in this country, we got to slow it down because we had summertime. And everyone, all schools kind of had to shut down. Um, so just thinking about all of that kind of restarting back up, I think we're going to, we might see something that's right now unimaginable in terms of like infection rates soon. Yeah, they said it. The guy said this winter is going to be very sad. I, I, I pay attention to everything and I hang on to it for a while. If I get a little nugget, like that guy, the top official for Trump or the, the guy, the white guy, I forget, not, not falsy, but the other, the other guy who's like speaking, he was like, yeah, this, this winter's going to be really sad. And I was like, oh, I ain't going nowhere, man. And you know, the, the thing about masks and people making fun of you for wearing a mask, that's actually happening. I've, I've had people, comics go, why are you still wearing a mask outside? And I go, cause you're too close. You know, I mean, it's just, I had someone invite me to a birthday party and they go, by the way, we're not all going to be wearing masks. Okay. You make people feel uncomfortable. I had someone say that to me and I was like, all right, well, I ain't going to be there. (laughs) So happy birthday. I'll send you a book (laughs) through Amazon or something. Maybe not Amazon. Maybe I'll send a card. Can't do anything. I can't, I can't go out without a mask. I can't order on Amazon. It's crazy. So let's go a high risk patient. So they should like understand and be respectful. Here's the thing about high risk in America. I remember everyone in America going, look at Sweden. I was like, yeah, look at Sweden's bodies in Sweden. They are healthier. Let's look <laughs> at that. Let's, let's really look at Sweden and look at and compare it to America. The jokes about us being overweight, we are the whole America has pre-existing health conditions. Have you ever noticed like the rednecks that are Trump supporters are all overweight saying they don't believe. And it's like, dude, you of all people need to stay your ass at home anyway. Okay. Let's talk about the incarcerated uh, situation. So I do want to ask this first article and I'm going to preface it with my sister posted this on Facebook it's a hard one for me, Pamela. I think you kind of know my situation with my sister who who's was, you know, murdered, basically. Um, so it is one of those things. I don't bring this up with you very often, Pam, but it's it's the reason I put this in here, because she's got a bit of an issue with releasing inmates during Corona. So our COVID-19. So inca- incarcerated San Quentin Insider, this article comes from on Yahoo!, Rasan Thomas, a writer and inmate at San Quentin State Prison, recently published an essay about his experience 
being incarcerated and getting COVID-19 during the pandemic. In the essay, Thomas says that everyone on his cell block will eventually become infected because prison officials have done little to protect inmates. He also discusses how there has been no consideration to let him or any other violent offenders be released, even though some have not committed another violent crime in 20 years. Thomas writes, is that justice? Should I die of COVID-19 because of what I did? When the prosecutor didn't even seek the death penalty, the message I'm getting is that you would rather see us dead than let us go free. San Quentin Prison has the largest cluster of coronavirus cases in the United States with nearly 2,500 people, including staff and inmates, having tested positive. At least 21 people there have died from COVID-19. So, Pam, when you read that, like, because you're dealing with this quite often, like, how, how do you answer someone's question? Like, for instance, like my family, you know, who is, has someone who's in jail for life, who did a horrible thing to my sister, who may want to be released? I think that's, that's a really complicated and multi kind of faceted question and yeah and I think and I think it requires a pretty complex answer where I think we have to ask ourselves right because so the criminal justice system I think we have to say like you know do we want this to be a system of accountability do we want it to be accountability and punishment or do we want it to just be punishment because I think when you're taught you know if we're gonna we can't shirk from I think protecting people that, you know, that are, that I don't think should be kind of sentenced to death, at least personally, no matter what they did, I think there needs to be protections in place, right? And so while I don't know that I would tell your family, this guy needs to be released, and I think a lot of my peers and colleagues might disagree with me, I do think there needs to be things in place that allow for social distancing. I know in New York, the youth detention centers, there was an extreme lack of um, masks, and they were all, the officials' response when we asked them was, oh, um, they, we don't want them to get alarmed. You know, they're already so stressed out. Oh, that's, I heard that. Yeah. And, you know, we think they're going to get stressed out, which, I mean, to me, is, I mean, it would be so much more stressful to not have access to, like, don't make that decision for them, right? Like, at least give them the masks. And, I mean, obviously, I think it should be enforced that they should wear them, too. But I just, you know, I think we we forgot about a lot of um the incarcerated population because they're invisible. We don't see them. But we have to think about it, not just in the sense that I think human dignity is important, no matter what anyone has done, you know, combined with there's also staff that's going in every day. And a lot of those people have died, too. And they have families as well. Like a lot of correctional officers have been harmed, too. And, you know, then they go back into the community and they spread it. So it's really a community issue as well. And how do we contain the spread in prisons? is really, I think, an interesting question that we were not prepared for at all, that I think as as a society, we have to, to think through because pandemics are going to happen again. Unfortunately, people are way too close together. So I think we need to be better prepared for this type of thing. If just people would answer the way you just answered, honestly, you know, instead of having like de Blasio fails in so many ways because you could see him re-answering the question like he navigates out of the question or he doesn't he's such a politician with it you know and I guess it's such a good way that you answered it because it 
it gives me some type of relief that you're acknowledging that this is a new situation, that we weren't prepared for it. You're acknowledging that. And then you're saying, well, this is what we should start to look at. Like, why can't politicians do that? To bless What's his, wrong with them? He, he, he will say, well, look, well, look, uh, and then just pivot, <laughs> pivot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I just I told someone yesterday, I don't think I can, I'm, I'm at this point now. I don't feel like I can count on the people in charge anymore. And the thing is, I feel like that's a really scary thing, too. That combined with like everything is fake news. There's no such thing as a fact. That's like the beginning of authoritarian governments, right? Like there's the trust in our society is just dissipating um, to a point where, you know, I could see this going one or two ways. And I hope that we don't go towards, you know, fascism. But honestly, a lot of the signs are there for a potential fascist situation. There's no trust. Now, fascism means what? Like if you're not standing close, if you're standing not six feet, then you get beaten. Well, see, pub- <laughs> I'm sorry. Me, no, I mean, as in, like, I, I'm talking more about like Trump. And no, like, I'm joking. Yeah. yeah. But hey, I think that would be for me. I'm like, you know, public health issues. I, I don't know. I, I wish that the country had taken more of a nationalized approach to this whole thing. Um, even- what is the the act? Uh, it's called that he did not activate ever. Right. Trump. What is it called? The Defense Act? I'm not, I don't remember what it is. I think it's, it's called the Defense Act. And he never, like Cuomo kept saying it. Any other president, but probably would have done it. It's, it's Yeah, just so that every state is has to do like testing the same way. Every state has to do masking the same way. The things are put in place. Like it's crazy that New York has flattened the curve and yet it's like we're just waiting for all these other states surrounding. Like when de Blasio talks about these points of the the checkpoints where they ask people where you've been. Like, what is that? People lie. Like, I just got off the plane feeling great. <laughs> I'm going to quarantine for 14. I was with someone who was apparently quarantined for 14 days. We went for a bike ride. So low level crime. Should they be released? Do you believe? A hundred percent. I think they should. But I think that there needs to be some sort of strategy to support communities um, right now. And I think, you know, with um, the, the legislation that Trump wants to sign, sign into being without Congress support, like they're prioritizing billionaires. They're not prioritizing low income people. And th- so the money is out there. And so I think if you're just going to release low level people, you can't just say, okay, bye, you know, here's your Metro card. You have to think about a transition plan. You have to connect them to community supports so that they don't end up, you know, committing more low level crimes because, you know, otherwise you're just setting them up to fail, to be homeless. They need to have a case manager and um, they need to have those community connections in order to, I think, create a more safe society and, and, you know, for them to have a real shot at a second chance. Okay. So going back to your point about So if they're released, then do you think back to like there's a dark thing in play? Do you think that not planning the release of a low level crime is part of their plan, their dark plan to show that you need us? Do you know what I'm saying? Like it gets so deep that I go, it's possible because I keep hearing the cops saying, well, you wanted to release them. Right. (laughs) 
And I think also politicians need votes from all communities, um, right? And so I think low-income communities need to also feel like they need the police in order for the, the status quo, like the world as we know it to work. We need all those people to think cops are good, right? Like I, my, I, have a, I went to a doctor's appointment once and the nurse was like taking my blood pressure. She was talking about how lucky she is that there's cops and she's in the Bronx, right? And so, I mean, whether it's intentional or not, I don't know if it's part of the dark plan, but I think it plays into that narrative for sure. And that's something we should pay attention to. Now, Nitika, you seem to be shaking your head a lot. Have you, be, have you been, what are your thoughts about everything we were just- but Yeah, I think the thing that just keeps coming up for me and everything is that- this is sort of showcased the like foundation of selfishness that this country is built on. And, you know, that's more of like an emotional look at things. It's not agreed, you know, purely systemic, but I just keep thinking of myself as like a young brown girl. You know, I grew up in Ohio. I also lived in Cairo in Singapore when I was really young. And then when I moved here, I just remember being like the only brown girl in the middle of a sea of white people that I wished I was like, or wish I looked like. And I remember that even at that point in my life, I remember feeling that there was something so different about this country and this culture than growing up overseas, you know, even up until I was six years old. And it was, I didn't have the words for it then, but a lot of what's been coming up for me during this time is like, oh, this is that. And actually Pamela kind of talked about this a little bit where it was like the communities would come together. They would have real change in more of the suburban areas and stuff before and I think that that is just a huge, that is like the core of so many of these issues that everyone, including our president, is just out for themselves, out for their own agenda. They don't care about us as a whole. And so, and I think that's where my overwhelm comes in, right? Especially for people who I know that are on the front lines fighting and you know, for people of color, it's just like, that's just so not, I, I couldn't think like that if you paid me to think like that. Like, I don't even understand how that is like so prevalent in this society, but it is. And so, yeah, I'm just listening to everything that you guys are saying and like, wow, that is just the thing that keeps popping up in every single circumstance. Nina? Same. I just, it's a sad day. I feel like I don't know if things are getting worse or now that I'm older, I'm more conscious of like what's going on around me because like a couple years ago, I didn't know any of this. I didn't, I mean, I knew, of course I knew there was like racism and all that stuff, but I never knew that like origin of cups was to like capture slaves and like just all these things that I'm like, oh shit, the world sucks. <laughs> I feel like there are things that are changing, going in the right direction. There's people are more aware now, people, there's a lot of programs you can go after if you're like for anything really for like homelessness, there's shelters now for drug abuse. And there's people are more aware of like police brutality and just like the justice system, like Pam was saying. So I feel like there are a lot more, there's a lot more like hope now rather than like back in the day where no one knew anything that was going on because there was really no social media. Like, you know, like Brianna Taylor, if this happened 10 years ago, nobody would have known. These kind of things that I realized in today's society give me a little bit of hope that 
we'll see a brighter tomorrow. Hopefully one day. That's a good way to look I at know, it. I really appreciate that, Nina. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, I'm like super positive and that's, that's kind of my personal brand, you know, yeah. is to be super positive. And I just feel like I haven't quite gotten there yet this time, yeah. you know, and, and I agree with what you were saying about how you're just learning about so much of this stuff, because I remember the morning that Trump was like the first day in office or whatever, the day after he was elected, I remember calling my mom and just like bawling my eyes out. And I was just like, oh, my God, I feel unsafe as a brown woman for the first time in my life. And I was just like, this is what black people have been telling me or talking about their whole freaking lives. I had no idea. Yeah, I had absolutely no idea. So I get that. And I think it is. I'm so much happier that I'm aware of things that I wasn't aware of because until we're all free, you know, none of us are free. And I completely agree with that. But at the same time, I'm just like, I don't know. Freedom feels really far some days. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what is freedom? What people think freedom is, is very different. I mean, like the freedom in America is what's killing America, actually, when you think about it, the idea of freedom in America, because what some people think their rights are with the masks is insane. And it's they, they're acting like spoiled children right now. Yeah, it's like I don't see them complaining about having to wear a, a, a seatbelt or like not drinking and driving. Like these are just things that are going to help society as a whole just be a safer, better place. It's not about this bizarre like control that people are trying to make it out to be. So maybe it's like freedom without what is that then? Is it like freedom without empathy is kind of pointless or it's but it's more than empathy. It's like that selfishness that I was talking about, you know, because the thing with the mask thing, I mean, I was quiet for most of that part because I was just like, I could just tear into this so bad. <laughs> I get so angry about it. And I think, you know, anger that is um, for the right causes is actually really important right now. So I don't think that's a bad thing. But I, yeah, I walk around and I literally fantasize about like, what are all the different things that I could put on my shirt and my forehead and my mask and hold as a sign to let you know that I have two invisible illnesses that you would never know that I'm immune compromised and like, go fuck yourself for not wearing a fucking mask while I'm trying to take a walk and like not go crazy in my apartment. You know, you're actually hindering my ability to do that, you know? And so it's not just... You're right, Marina. It's not just freedom. It's like, but it's that extra thing of having people not be selfish at the same time. I don't know. More of a culture thing than the law. Right. Like I, God, this is going to sound so racist and I'm not racist if anyone's listening, but it's mainly like, like Marina said, just like the Southern white Trump supporters that don't give a shit about anybody else. And it's like, that's, you know, as a brown woman, I'm sure you've like been taught like a lot of like family comes first and a lot of customs and like you know you have to be good to your neighbor and just like uh treat others the way you want to be treated and like I just don't think that this specific group of people like were raised on those kind of standards but I don't think it's just I mean I just got in my Indian accent I don't think it's just you know I don't know where that came from I don't think it's just that because I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who just celebrated Eid 
And she was saying how her parents were like, oh, you know, my our in-laws are coming. Our cousins are coming. Don't make anybody uncomfortable. They don't want There's a lot of people pleasing happening. They don't want like Marina was saying with the birthday party. Right. So I agree that there is maybe a louder, more prominent group that it's a little bit easier to point out in the crowd like, oh, these are the people. But I also think that it's it's so intrinsic in the culture of being American. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm not here for it. And at the same time, this is where I live. So like, yeah. like if I ever showed any my parents any type of like, I don't care about others or how they're feeling or like, it's all about me and knowing like my Arab parents would have beat my ass. That doesn't roll with like, like Palestinians, like you're, you're, you're just like taught that like, you're part of a community and you're like the way you live affects everybody else and you have to like be helpful and and like all those kind of things so I just I agree but I also think that I mean at least in the Indian community this particular person I was talking to she has a chronic illness and she you know happens to be Muslim but for my family I know my parents are always like Nithika just calm down okay everybody needs to do what they need to do and I'm like sitting there with a magnifying glass, like, I'm sorry, where is your mask? Is it above your nose? Or I'm not coming in if you haven't Lysoled everything. Like, I'm not doing that. And I look like the cuckoo one because everybody's like, oh, it's fine. We're fine. Every Because I think inherently people in this country especially are taught to numb their pain. They're taught to numb and avoid their fear. I know that's like going deep into the trenches of things, but I really believe that that's where it comes from, you know? So if I own being with you could make me sick, being with you could kill me. That means you have to own that you could be harmful, that you could also be sick, that something could happen to you. You have to own all of your fears. And I think, I think there are a lot of people out there who are just not willing to do it. They want to medicate. They want to alcohol. They want to socialize. They want to all the things on top of those true feelings. And not admit that they're immune compromised. How much of this population is walking around with cancer and doesn't know it or has diabetes and doesn't know it because we don't have a good healthcare system. So like probably about 60, I know 60% is immune compromised, but I, that know it. Right. Yeah, I mean, there. last year, the National Health Council said that there are 133 million Americans that have a chronic illness. Okay, so not all the people who have chronic illnesses are immune compromised, but that gives you a sense of the sick population. And a chronic illness is just something that has symptoms for three months or longer. That is what it is defined as, right? So, and then if you think about it, a lot of people, you know, in the chronicon community have endometriosis, for example, which happens to affect black women disproportionately. And it's it's a huge, huge problem. And it takes a minimum of seven years for most people with endometriosis to even get even get diagnosed with that condition, right? And that's just one condition that I'm pointing out. So yeah, I mean, I completely agree. There are so many people out there who are walking around with illness who a lot of times, not because they're bad people, but they can't afford their freaking health insurance. They don't want to go to the doctor. You know, they can't afford to go to the doctor. And so, yeah, I don't even remember where this tangent started. but No, but it's a good one because it's it's a great one. And it, it points to my frustration, too, is breast cancer, 
survivor, I guess you could say. I have a hard time saying survivor because I think of the ones who did not make it. And I, so I don't, I have a hard time saying survivor, but I do think that my awareness, my ability to have empathy is higher because I went, I have been saying like, I know it's crazy to say this, but I am actually glad that I got breast cancer last year because it prepared me for this year, because I have an extra understanding of what it means to protect yourself and protect others and to care for others and to listen to others when they say, like for someone to tell me you're making people feel uncomfortable by wearing a mask, it's just, I mean, I, I just, the, it took me four days to get over it mm -hmm. and to still answer the call when they called me, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, you're just dumb, man. And here's the thing is like the person who was saying it to me looks so unhealthy. <laughs> and I'm like, you're like, you represent everything that America is right now. You are the most unhealthiest person just ready just to be out. And I do believe that a lot of that is their own, they're showing their depression. Their depression is showing their need to be, like, I get it. It's becoming very hard for even some of my breast cancer friends. I could see them having a difficult time not being out and around people. It's not easy. Yeah. But there's not a lot of messaging to help the difficulty of this, you know, that's where I have my most problems with this administration. I know. And what I've been thinking lately also is that empathy, I believe, is earned. It's something that is earned. I don't think it is something that you can teach. I think people really get true empathy when they are able to experience what the other side of that is like in whatever way, it doesn't have to be cup for cup. Like it's not because you experienced breast cancer. I have to have illness in order to have empathy. Right. But there's an inherent problem with that. If we're living in a country that they don't want to feel anything. And so th there's just, there's like an empathy. I mean, everybody says everything is an epidemic, but there's a major empathy deficiency in this country. And I think that is inherent in the cycle of this country as well, you know? So yeah, don't get me started. I just, <laughs> but I also want to point out, Nick, you brought up a good point because the greed and the, um, is like when I watched that, uh, sphere city or is that on Netflix with about the mafia, the greed that was there they have Trump throughout the whole thing about his buildings, you know, while the mafia was owning, like they own all these buildings, like that New York city. We've all known like the garbage, like Chicago, my friends from Chicago always come here and they go, why is the garbage out on the street? I go the mob. <laughs> That's why we can't solve it because the unions, the mobs, they're controlled. The union, blah, 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 blah. It's still not over. They're still controlling a lot of this. And so, like, it's so interesting to watch that Netflix show because they show Trump is string throughout that whole documentary about that time, that period of time. And you go, oh, well, if the mob was so corrupt and they and Trump was able to still have his buildings, that means he had to deal with corruption. And he's also corrupt. There's no way he was able to do what he did without some level of corruption. I mean, these are all like basically common sense things that I know a lot of, but the realization of it during this COVID-19 is, whoo, 
but um nina i mean uh yeah you brought up the the um this article when you talk about the prison system and you know slavery so this uh, article by the guardian this black man shouldn't spend life in prison for trying to steal hedge clippers so recently, the Louisiana Supreme Court refused to review the sentence of Fair Wayne Bryant, a black man who was sentenced to life in prison for attempting to steal hedge clippers. Chief Justice Burnett Johnson wrote a decision citing that Mr. Bryant's punishment was disproportionate and excessive to the crime he committed. Justice Johnson explains that Mr. Bryant was sentenced as a habitual offender due to four prior convictions, though only one of the convictions was a violent crime. She argues that it is cruel and unusual to sentence someone to life in prison for petty theft, a criminal behavior which is often driven by poverty and addiction, which we've been discussing. Moreover, introducing extreme sentences for petty theft caused by poverty has its roots in what's called the pig laws, measures which were largely designed to re-enslave African-Americans in the South after the Civil War. So, Pamela, you must hear about these pig laws. Mm -hmm. I think... I mean, the guy tried to steal something. I think his, I think I read the article and like, I think his previous crimes were, I think one of them might've been armed robbery, which was the only violent crime in his history. And I think that that one was like many years before, like, you know, kind of an old crime. And I think, I mean, again, like what, like why, you know, why are we locking this guy up? Why are we robbing the community um, of a person uh, instead of giving them resources, like these are our taxpayer dollars. And so like, could we, could we not do something for this guy? He's, I don't think he, personally, he's a public threat to society. And so if he's not, then why are we kind of buying into the system? And like you're saying, it dates back to after, like after reconstruction, black Americans and white Americans started to work together to demand things, right? Like low income people came together and the government started to separate the, the people through subconscious messaging. Like a lot, I mean, it's not so subconscious even today. Um, I think it's pretty assertive kind of racial tensions that I think our current president kind of stirs up. But this is an old theme where, you know, I think government was trying to figure out how to remain powerful and not give low income people what they wanted, whether they were white or black. And they said, no, you know, you guys really shouldn't be friends. Let's start talking about this idea of, you know, a violent black man. Let's start putting out images that, you know, connote fear in people. And of course, that's going to very quickly lead people to think about the issue emotionally, want to protect their children and protect their families without any real basis. So it's, it's really a system that's been around for a long time. And I think just kind of not thoughtful I don't think that it's really increasing public safety. I think you have to ask yourself, like, what will actually create the, those things that we're looking for? And there's proven evidence-based models that will actually help us create a better system that don't rely on punishment just for the sake of punishment. Yeah. Now, I have another article. Speaks to the people who they're arresting people for taking photos of the cops. Have you witnessed any of that? Have you seen any of this? I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. And I think that's a new kind of frontier for um, activism uh, amongst different advocacy groups, because I feel like it's just so ridiculous. They're literally flipping, like, again, we're seeing the powers that be in terms of police powers, like 
use every opportunity to tear communities down. Like, I, you know, at first I was like, oh, you know, is this really, I think what the guy, so what happened is in the article I read is I think a guy took a photo of a cop that had a Blue Lives Matter mask on um, that was empathizing with some counter protesters that were all lives matter, you know, blue lives matter folks. Um, And so he took a picture of him and said something like, let's identify this B word or something, you know, whatever it's, I guess it's, it's not polite. That's not a polite tweet, but he's, is he saying, I'm going to go kill this guy? You know, where's the actual threat? Like, I think we have to really like look at the tweet objectively and say, does this constitute, you know, an actual offense? And I'm not a legal expert, so I, I don't know. But I feel like my my instinct is that they kind of jump to conclusions there and, and are harming communities in ways that like it's really imbalanced. Like cops can do whatever they want and they can get away with a million things and um, like actual violence. Right. And so you have that like juxtaposed and it's kind of ridiculous. Like, oh, OK, this tweet that literally didn't hurt anyone, hasn't killed a single person. And then over here you have the cops that killed Breonna Taylor. And to my knowledge, they're still out. Where's the justice there? Like, yeah. And then in this other article, they're calling they're they're giving it a name. It's called Gang Consequence. So Utah protesters who splashed red paint and broke windows could face up to a life in prison because wow. of gang enhancement. This article is by Lee Cohen on CBS News. So during a July Black Lives Matter protest in Salt Lake City, the windows of the district attorney's office was smashed. Oh, that's why. And and red paint was splashed on the road. Now, multiple protesters are facing charges that carry a maximum of life in prison. The charges have more severe consequences because Salt Lake City District Attorney Sim Gill upgraded them with a gang enhancement, which increases the penalties for offenses committed in concert with two or more persons or in relation to criminal street gang, according to the state code. See, they're trying to be slick. In every way. And the prosecutors say these charges are justified because protesters caused thousands of dollars in damage. And these charges have been met by opposition from many in Salt Lake City who say the charges are excessive, retaliatory, and equate protest participants with gang members. Which is why I stopped talking to a friend, by the way, who put on his Instagram that the same animals that killed George Floyd are the same animals that are looting. Yeah, they put on their Instagram and That's they a pretty hefty comparison. Yeah, and they thought, you know, they're a comedian. They thought it was funny. I, I didn't see the humor in any of it. And no. on top of that, I mean, my point about this guy point, putting this up there is his followers are like kind of white, like they like the racist white comedy. So you're not putting out anything that's, you're not helping anybody. And then it's like, calling the people who are doing this gang, like, I guess where I'm at, or the question I want to ask is, do we sympathize with the people whose homes are looted without, I do feel on some level, the if I owned a business, let's say, and someone looted, I'd probably be losing my freaking mind. And I'd be like, don't defund the police. I need you to help me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, where do you, where do you guys stand with this? It, it becomes difficult because I am a person who doesn't own a business, so I could kind of go, yeah, just deal with it. You got insurance. But where do you guys stand with it when you see these comments? I have a very skewed view on the whole situation only because my sister's a cop. Okay. So, of course, we should sympathize with people whose businesses get 
destroyed and they lose money and all that stuff and they had nothing to do with anything, of course. But that shouldn't be the main point of the conversation. Like the bigger picture is and the bigger issue and the reason why all of this is happening is because there are a lot of racist cops in the country who get away with doing horrendous things. So it's like a casualty of the bigger situation and it sucks. And of course you should feel bad for them, but it's not anything that the media should be focused on at all. Because if it was just like a regular day and my rest, someone threw a brick in my restaurant, CNN is not going to talk about it, but it's like, because it's in the context of deflecting from the bigger situation, all these stations are like fixated on the looting, which again, of course is horrible and no one should be doing that. And if you're doing it, you're an asshole and you should definitely stop. But at the same time, it's like, that's not the main point. And it's like, it sucks because like they are taking away from the bigger like conversation, but it's like a lot of them are just, the people who are doing this aren't really like down for the cause to begin with. They're not the people who are fighting for like equality. They're not the people who are fighting for justice. They're not the people who are fighting for like laws to change and all those kind of things. So it's like, we should we really even give them any type of attention? Yeah, it also reminds me of like Tamika Mallory's recent speech um, just about and a lot of people actually have said this, too, but hers sort of went viral around just how we like people learned looting and violence and a lot of that from the system that was first created. You know, it wasn't just out of nowhere. It's like they're trying to fight for their lives and for, you know, having basic human rights, you know, and so obviously there are people who. Not everybody falls in that category, just like you're saying, not every cop is racist, you know, but there's just this overall, yeah, it's just such a foundational issue, you know? Yeah. And would, and I don't think small business owners are getting protected in the same way that this prosecutor's office, like, let's hold on a second. Like, would anyone be facing those types of crazy consequences if it was a small business? Probably not. It's because it's the prosecutor's office. Exactly. That's why I was like, oh, this is so clear to me what's why this is even a story yeah but then I also think I mean this has been my view I feel like burn it all down man just just because I had like I had someone say to me recently the cops can't do their jobs because of all this and you know we're not safe and and I I don't feel safe at all (laughs) I mean I, I I got the citizens app I've been seeing stabbings like nonstop on the citizens Sorry, Nitika. No, I'm not going to download that app. Oh, you don't want to because you'll never leave your home. Yeah. If you saw what I like every day, there's a stabbing. And I'm like, at the same time, I'm like, I don't think cops are the answer. I just think that the community, whoever that is, whatever, wherever you want to start it in your community, whoever you are, if you're good at it, start it. Bring the churches back in the black community, man. Uh, and do it outside for now, but do it virtually. Something to get this community. It's got to start in the community. Can't it can't be with the cops? And if the if the cops want to show that they want to be involved in the community, and I think that that's important, then good. But they don't say that in these messages, and the in and the media is not picking it up if it is said, and that's. That's what's missing. For the people who are saying, like, not all cops are bad. Of course, that's a true statement. Not all cops, but there's a lot of good ones. But if the good ones rallied up and got rid of the racist ones or spoke up and was like, these people need to get arrested or they went on strike or did something to show good faith, like, not, then you guys wouldn't be 
lumped into the category of like all cops suck because if you're racist and you look and you go and you kill like a black unarmed young man that's not the first time you exhibited some sort of racist behavior like it's not a surprise no one's gonna be like wow we didn't think he was i'm sure he's made comments i'm sure he's shown right or intervene if they're killing someone it's like all those cops that stood by like yeah and i think i do think there's like i totally agree with you nina and i think we need to set up and incentivize the police forces to do that. I think right now, like it's the opposite with qualified immunity. If you're racist and, or have, you know, a passion for violence and being violent and, you know, asserting your dominance, you could join the police force and do it for no repercussions, you know, um, unless it, you know, gets caught on camera and everyone goes crazy about it. So like these laws definitely need to change um, to prevent people like that from being opportunistic. Like, if you if you're that person who is you know wants to go beat people up, it's actually great to go into the police because you can do it without getting in trouble. Um, so like we need to totally re like shift how we protect cops for really no reason. They have more power than everyone else in the community. Why should we protect them more? You know, and I and I know that there's risks involved um, on the job, but I don't think that that reality is mutually exclusive with providing some basic accountability measures for the job. Yeah. And the history of the cop show. I mean, you watch that Netflix. I cannot encourage you enough to watch it to see just how the cops, just even their relationship with the mob is so telling of how they treat black people versus like black people who've done nothing versus Italian mob murderers they they call them the mob they call they don't call them thugs by the way throughout the whole sp- i didn't hear thug i don't think i heard thug mentioned one time and i think there was a moment where even the cops shake their hands and talk about how laugh they laugh giuliani laughs about the character you know he brings them down he's he's very boastful it's more of a campaign for giuliani this show by the way which he shouldn't think it is cuz it actually shows how he humanized these thugs. He gave them characters. But when they talk about Central Park, you know, what is it? Central how many? How five. five? Central Park. Thank you. This is why I'm a comedian, not an activist. Because I'd be like, when they talk about Central Park seven, they were like, Marina, <laughs> it was five. <laughs> I could never do it. I just get I smoke too much weed and I forget things. Oh, that's hilarious. But, But when they talk about Central Park Five, they don't, there's no like, oh, you know, this kid was actually nice. He was quiet. Nothing in his character. Anyway, it it really was eye opening for me. Um, I do want to talk about because we always want to highlight something positive. And I think this is positive. The Cardi B and, and Megan. Have you guys seen it? WAP? Is it WAP or WAP? Nina, WAP. you're the youngest one. Is it WAP? I think it's WAP. Yeah. Have WAP. you all have you seen WAP? Yes. I saw it so once. So it's uh, arguably one of the biggest songs out right now with Cardi B and Megan, Three Stallions, WAP, which the LA T- Times calls a savage, nasty, sex-positive triumph. WAP, a single off of uh, Cardi B's upcoming sophomore album, lays out an astonishing list of boasts and desires from two female rappers proud to follow in the sex-positive footsteps of Lil' Kim, Kia, Foxy Brown, and Trina. They left out, uh, oh, girl, I noticed. What's her name? 
the other one. Nicki Minaj. They left her out. Nicki Minaj. Weird. You also said Meg three. It's the stallion. Is that what you said? What did I say? I thought you said three. Oh, the, oh, Megan the stallion. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Megan you take it. Nina, we need you on here. We need this you. Is, this we is this is this is yours. Yeah, go ahead, Dana. Tell us about what your thoughts are. My thoughts are: I love all women, and I'm never gonna bash women, even if she deserves it. But I'm just gonna be a little do it judgy right now, and just be like. Meg had three like bomb hits and it was one with Beyonce and one with um, Cardi B and one with another, another woman. I forgot who it was. And so uh, obviously women in hip hop can get along as long as it's not with Nicki Minaj. <laughs> Cause I feel like anytime Nicki Minaj deals with another like female rapper, it's like, there's like some sort of drama. And I mean, obviously there's two studies to every story. You can't believe what you read in the tabloids. So it's like, maybe she excluded Nicki because Nicki's just full of drama. This is all my assumption, by the way. So I could be totally wrong, but that's did just- you, Did thing. you like the video? What'd yeah, I liked it. Um, I just kind of wish she didn't put Kylie in it, but- Oh, she, I don't know who's where. I don't Kylie Jenner, Kim Kardashian's <laughs> little sister. Was she, I didn't see She her. was in the video. She had like a cameo. Oh, I missed it. I I watched it. I I I, I just I, wish she wasn't in it. <laughs> go ahead, Pavel. <laughs> I I've seen like the internet, you know, having the same thoughts, Nina. And I think um someone uh swapped Viola Davis in for Kylie Jenner in like an image, which I thought is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> oh, they did. It's just kind yeah. of like I I mean, here's the thing. I feel like I constantly uh, catch myself being extra judgmental of like women for like certain decisions that like are like if men made those decisions that we may not even all think of, it may not even come into our awareness that they did something, right? So part of me wonders if like we just hold women to higher standards and being more thoughtful about like who they include. Um, But just from like a personal preference, I didn't get the point of her being in the video at all. She just kind of stands there. And so I just don't know what she, she didn't really add anything to the video in any way, which is just kind of weird. I think it was just a weird decision. I guess just the fact that she's Kylie Jenner and has a hundred billion followers, just like to boast yeah. like ratings on people to see it and stuff. And just like free publicity, I guess on like, but like Meg the Stallion and Cardi B don't need free publicity. They don't need that. They don't They're need it. Yeah. Cardi B and Meg the Stallion, but like maybe they were just trying to like diversify because it was like maybe they're just friends with her exactly maybe it was just like yeah. a how many times have i i mean we've done stuff i feel like this just like sure girl come on <laughs> that's literally what my thought process was being yeah. at Dave Chappelle's house like i don't really belong here i didn't add anything but like i was there just chilling so it's kind of <laughs> like i think cardi b and, and um kylie's kids are friends yeah so maybe they were just like cool and she was like hey we're shooting a video you want to do a cameo and she was like okay that's really how things happen. i feel like that's probably more what it was and people just overthink things and I'm like yeah like not everything I mean this is coming from me I try to find like deep meaning for everything but not everything has to have a deep profound meaning like sometimes things are just fun yeah that is true you know but then this guy uh, James P. Bradley he's a Republican congressional candidate so no surprise with his reaction he critiqued the song saying that Cardi and Megan are what happens when children are raised without God. Oh my gosh. And without a strong father figure. He went on to say that WAP, which he claimed to have heard accidentally, <laughs> that's what he claimed, uh, made, me want, <laughs> made me want to pour holy water in my ears. Oh, he's just being hating. He's just hating. I will say, though, 
as an old as the oldest one on here who's having hot flashes nonstop. Because uh, <laughs> I'm Perry. I'm Perry Menopausal. So welcome to your future, ladies. I'm right behind you, girl. Don't oh, worry. It's <laughs> awful. It's 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 not all the time, but this week has been. I will be honest. I was a bit like, oh my, what are they? What what's this dripping they're talking about? And oh, I know oh, I haven't no. watched it yet because I feel like I have to be mentally prepared. <laughs> it's a lot. The language is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> but I did like. I do like it's funny because I'm watching it and I'm like, I do like this generation of women because they're owning their sexuality in a way that I never could. I mean, really never could. I get like, even when I was watching it, I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Like my therapist actually is probably, she listens to this. So hi. Um, she <laughs> oftentimes she does. She told me this week I called her. I haven't talked to her in a long time. She's like, I actually listened to the podcast. I was like, Oh my God. Um, it's like your mom saying, well, no, you're not. She's cooler than my mom. She used to watch how I would get kind of shy talking about sex. She's like, what is that? And I was like, and then I, so I watched this video and I just think this is actually pretty cool. I wish I didn't have some of the hangups that I have. Cause these women way don't have any hangups. Another benefit of social media. Honestly, people love to shit on social media and say that it's horrible, but it's like, it's really not. There's so many great things that came out of it. Even like with mental health. Now I feel like everyone's so okay with like admitting that they're seeing a therapist. Like, whereas like 20 years ago was kind of like looked down upon or you kind of hid it from everybody. Now everyone's like tweeting, like, saw my therapist today. She said, I'm fine. You know, thing. like, it's just, people are now sharing more, which in turn makes things normalized yeah i'm not hating on the the women for the video for sure i mean i have to watch it at first but i don't think i would hate on them for it but it is more just like oh i'm very sensitive like i turn off songs that have swear words just not because i judge it but just because i'm like such an empath it like gets into my body and then i'm like i can't shake this off i need to like go for a walk so i'm bracing myself i love it you got to watch it right after. Okay, maybe I will. I'll text you. I was going to say, am I the only one that's like six in the morning walking to the bus, like listening to trap music, like about like <laughs> gangs and drugs and stripping? I know. I, I'm with you. I'm totally there. And that's why I love this. Like this song is like, I'm so tired of hearing about these topics from men. Um, but I also enjoy it like guiltily, right? Like whatever. I'll admit to it. I'm a bad feminist or bad whatever. <laughs> uh, but with this, I get to be like, you know, yeah, there's some negative stuff going on in there for sure. But um, but it's also empowering. And, you know, so many of us have been made to feel like hoes left and right. And I think this really changes the narrative on that, which is really important. So. Yeah. And I don't think it's like being a bad feminist at all. I think that's why it's like no judgment. It's just like I'm sensitive. So that's why I'm not so into it, but not from a judging place. Like I think Feminism is about just owning whatever it means to you to be a woman or to be a feminist. Do you know what I mean? So own it. Own it, Pamela. Yeah. They also said that the guys were rapping and they did some dual thing and no one commented about their lyrics on yeah. the same time that this was released. It's just like men can. Was it uh, Snoop Dogg? It ain't no fun if my homies can't have none. I know you guys now I'm coming from the old generation. It ain't no fun if my homies can't have none. 
And nobody has said anything yeah, about not, that I'm gang. Not into that. <laughs> That's a gangbang song, pretty much. That's gross. That's gross. <laughs> and I mean, no. And I used to dance to. I was like, yeah, you know. I was like, yeah. I remember the first time I heard it, my sister was playing. I was like, what is that? <laughs> you know, but no one said anything. So, yes. Well, I want to thank you all for being here today on Friends Like Us. You guys, thank you for the just dealing with all the internet stuff. I know it's the new norm. So I'm going to ask um, you first, Nina. Where can our listeners find you and what are you doing? Uh, follow me on Instagram uh, at Nina Karufa, N-I-N-A-K-H-A. And I'll probably pop up right after that because I'm the only Nina Karufa on Instagram. And I'm not doing anything. So just follow me on TikTok for ridiculous videos every now and then. Same username, at Nina Karufa. Oh, I got to follow you so I can get some ideas. <laughs> yeah. And with friends like us, you'll have a judgment-free zone. Nice. Nitika, where can they find you and what's going on? Uh, yeah, so Nitika Chopra at Nitika Chopra on Twitter, which I like more these days than other things, um, and Instagram. But mainly follow Chronicon. It's at Chronic ON. So there's just one C at the end. Chronicon official is our Instagram and Twitter. And I'm working on a ton of new launches and new offerings for the fall. So depending on when this will be out, there'll be a lot of new stuff for you. So now with friends like us, things will always be interesting. They will. And Pamela. So uh, my Instagram is at the Pam Villa because there was no Pamela Villa or Pam Villa. So I added the the which I saw other people do. Um, and you spell my name P-A-M-V-I-L-L-A. Or you could also check out, so my job at Bronx Connect, as I said, they do great, great work. So check out bronxconnect.org. Uh, we work with young people. Um, you can reach out to me if you're interested in connecting on that at Pamela V at bronxconnect.org. And with friends like us, we can talk about fun, hot topics in a safe environment. Thank you, Pamela. And Marina Franklin, just go to, I don't know why I say my name. (laughs) Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Check out my special single black female. It's available on all platforms, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, on demand. I'm finding out that people are now able to see it. It seems to pop up. It's doing quite well. YouTube seems to have put a a word out, apparently. I I find out through Instagram. And then um, I'll be doing also a show with Colin Quinn in Brooklyn. I'll be putting that date and time up on my website. And it'll be socially distanced. That's why they actually are waiting until September to do it. So with all the safety measures. So follow me. And with friends like us, it is easier to listen because you have smart, intelligent, and beautiful, great friends. Amen. Check Check us out. out.